John chapter 12. Believe it or not, I'm going to finish John chapter 12 this morning. In John chapter 12, we have some final words um, in John's gospel from the Lord Jesus Christ before he ends his more public ministry. This is the tail end in the gospel of John of his public ministry. He had been preaching, he had been uh, doing various things, and the bulk of the people, the Jewish people in the first century, did not believe in him. And so it's in that context of the end of his public ministry, the last week of his life, um, that he addresses these people who did not believe in him. I'm going to read verses 43 through 50 to give us a wider context, but hear these words. Nevertheless, even among the rulers... Many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So there is this uh, lip service to Jesus, but an unwillingness to confess him publicly. So this is cowardly belief. This is not uh, true and saving faith. Then John records these words, uh, gives us these words, verse 44. Then Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. In other words, if you don't believe in Christ, you're abiding in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, at least not now, for I did not come, his first coming, to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Then verse 49, for, see the connection, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. So we're going to look at verses 49 and 50 this morning and the second service as well. I want you to note, first of all, that there is a connection between verses 49 and 50 with what precedes. And you can see that in the first word of verse 49, for. It's very clear by the use of that word that it is connecting, Jesus is connecting uh, what he says in verses 49 and 50 with what he just said. For. Why is it that the word Jesus has spoken 
will judge those on the last day who heard it but did not believe it. Because that's what he just said in verse 48. Our Lord says it is due to the source or origin of his teaching or message or doctrine. Again, in verse 48, we read, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Why? The answer is, verses 49 and 50, because of the source or origin of his teaching. It's not a mere man. It's not an opinionated first century Jewish rabbi. It's the incarnate Son of God who has spoken. Listen to Bishop Ryle of the 19th century. Our Lord would have the Jews know what a serious sin it was to refuse his words and not believe them. In so doing, men did not refuse the words of a mere man. They were refusing the words of him who never spake alone, but always in closest union with the Father. To refuse to receive the words of Christ was to reject not merely his words, but the words of God the Father. Okay, so this is not a trite, small thing that's happening. If you are in this uh, audience uh, hearing my voice today and you don't believe the gospel, you don't believe the good news about Christ, it should be a terrifying thing to you. Our Lord was speaking truth here, anchored in the divine mind. So if you ever wondered, what does God think about Jesus or me or eternal life? These are some of the words that you ought to consult to get that answer to that question. Uh, the Lord's teaching was revelation from heaven. It was not manufactured just horizontally among men by a mere man. I have come down from heaven, he says. Okay, so this is, this is a big deal, these words here. So there's a connection uh, between verses 48 and 49 and 50. But notice secondly, in verse 49, our Lord makes a denial, then a contrasting affirmation. You can see the denial and contrasting affirmation. Here's the denial. I have not spoken on my own authority. That's the denial. Here's the contrasting affirmation. But the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. So here's the denial. I have not spoken on my own authority. So it's basically the Son of God was not an independent agent acting merely from his own stance or authority. He says, that's not me. What he spoke is not the product of his own making, apart from, separate from, or different from his father. He always did, and we could say, say that which is pleasing to the father. You know, uh, none of us in our right minds can claim that, right? He always didn't said what was pleasing to the Father. So he denies his 
speaking on his own authority, and then he contrasts it with this. But the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. Our Lord has said things like this before. Listen to John 5.19. Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Those are odd words, aren't they? If the Father does divine things, and he does, then the Son does divine things. In fact, the very things the Father does, the Son does. Now listen to John 8, 28, and 29, getting a little closer to the words of John 12, 49. I do nothing of myself, this is Jesus again, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Now here's John 12, 49. But the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. John 8, 28, and 29 is very similar. The Son of God does nothing of himself and speaks nothing of himself or based on his own authority, independent authority. Whatever he did and said, he was commissioned to do and say. So, when he says, the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak, he's claiming divine authority for his teaching ministry. This is what he's doing here, okay? I don't claim divine authority for my teaching ministry, at least not in the sense that Jesus claimed divine authority of his teaching ministry. Everything he said, he was commissioned to say. He's like us in all things, yet without sin, okay? He never sinned in what he said. He always represented truth in what he proclaimed. This should cause people who hear Jesus' words yet do not believe them uh, to wake up. So if you're sleeping and you're an unbeliever, wake up. This is like, you know, serious business here. John Gill from the 17th century, 18th century says this, His doctrine was not human, but divine, and therefore a rejection of it cannot escape notice at the future judgment. He's not going to judge people in his first coming. That awaits his second coming. But everyone who hears about him, the audience in John 12, and now everybody here and elsewhere around the world, hear about him and reject him, do not believe his name. Those words are going to come back 
at the judgment day. Why is that? Because of their source or origin. When we're dealing with Jesus, we're dealing with a mysterious person. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Here is this divine Word in relation to God, yet God, who became flesh, that's the... That's Christmas, the mystery of the incarnation, the, the, the word of God or son of God, the eternal son of the eternal father takes to himself a human nature, body and soul. In order that he might fix us. By the way, if you haven't figured it out yet, you need a fix. Okay, that doctors can't give us. They can tinker with our bodies, but they can't enlighten the soul. They can't cause souls to recognize their own uh, sinfulness and their guilt and look outside of themselves for help in Christ and Christ alone. God can do that, and he does, but men can't. Notice third in verse 50, our Lord adds weight to his contrasting affirmation. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Now, by the words, his command is not meant the law of God, as revealed through Moses. Somebody could read it that way. He's a Jew, Jewish rabbi in the first century. He's speaking to Jews, and I know that his command, his law, is everlasting life. All you have to do is obey the law of Moses, as recorded for us in the Old Testament, and you can attain everlasting life. People thought that way back then. People think that way now. But that law did not promise everlasting life upon obedience to it. Listen to John Gilligan. What it promised to the obedient Israelites was only a a prolongation of natural life in the land which God gave unto them. But it neither promises nor gives spiritual life to the fallen sons of Adam. It leaves men as it finds them, dead in trespasses and sins. Did you hear that? If you're here this morning and you say, I'm here because I want to learn the law of God so I can obey it unto eternal life. Uh, No can he do, as the old Scotsman says. Um, You remember that little story about being in the the gym one day and I noticed up on the wall there are two stone tablets, you know, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and and a picture. And it said, for fast relief, take two tablets. We don't need the law of God. Actually, the law of God does not function to give us life, to give us everlasting life. This side of the fall of sin, it just points out our guilt and our need 
not for ourselves, but to go outside of ourselves for help. The two stone tablets aren't where we go for help. We go to Christ and the gospel. He has the words of life. Remember Peter said, Lord, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. Continuing on here, this command is not the law of God. The law cannot communicate either a life of sanctification or of justification, nor does it so much as give sinners any hope of life or show where it is to be had. The law strictly considered isn't the gospel, right? Have you ever heard of gospel? Somebody, I don't know, I think it's one of the Abendroth brothers. Gospel? It's where people mix law as imperative and gospel as grace and good news, and they make it sound like the whole Bible is gospel, is good news. The whole Bible is not gospel is not good news. Well, in one sense it is, but in another sense it isn't, right? The soul that sins shall die. That's good news, right? That's not good news. It's true news. It gives us no relief, right? You can't say, oh, I believe that the soul that sins shall die That's relieving to my conscience. I'm going to heaven because I believe that souls that sin shall die. Law doesn't provide the answer to our plight. Only the gospel does. Nor is everlasting life to be obtained by the works of the law, nor salvation by works of righteousness done by men, and consequently eternal life is never to be attained unto by obedience to the commands of the law. This is John Gilligan. It is so far from being in this sense life everlasting that it is the ministration of condemnation and death. So this doesn't mean this command here. Whatever it is, it's not obey the law unto justification in heaven. If his command does not refer to the law of God, to what then does it refer? It's a, it's a weird statement. His command is everlasting life. And we're not told, by the way, we're not told when he received this command, whatever it is. I'm, I'm going to define it in a second here. Did the Lord Jesus, according to his human nature, receive a command from the Father during his earthly ministry? It's a weird question to ask, right? Could this have been this this receiving a command? Could it have been in the eternal counsels of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Could it have been received in that sense? It could, we're just not told. I'll stop speculating. Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle at this point. It may help. Um, Whatever this command is, everlasting life, it seems to be not bad news, right? 
It seems to be good news. It seems to be not law, guilt, condemnation, but it seems to be, like John Gill puts it, the gospel is here meant. I think that's, that's right. The meaning of this sentence seems to be, this is J.C. Ryle, I know whether you like to believe it or not that this message, commandment, or commission which I have from my Father is life everlasting to all who receive it and believe. You, in your blindness, see no beauty or excellence in the message I bring and the doctrine I preach. But I know that in rejecting it, you are rejecting life everlasting. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Remember that? And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the life, excuse me, he who has the son has life, everlasting life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life, 1 John 5, 11, and 12. Some of you probably memorized that when you were a new believer. I remember I did. You think John got those kind of thoughts from someone? If you have the Son, you have the life. Somebody said it, Jesus, right? 1 John 5 echoes John chapter 12 and other statements. Here's 1 John 5, 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. Watch this. This is the true God and eternal life. He who has the Son has the life. By the way, we all have life. Um, if you're here, you have life. Nobody's dead here. We're animated. Our soul is in uh, with our bodies. Okay, we're not separated. That happens at death. The soul goes from the body, and then at the re- at the resurrection comes back. But we have life. We have natural life. We we have been brought into being. We're sustained in our being right now by by God, but this everlasting life isn't by virtue merely of creation. It's actually a gift that was attained by the obedience of another, Christ, for us and for our salvation. Everlasting life and natural life are not one and the same. Everyone who has existed on the face of the earth does not necessarily have the gift of everlasting life. By the way, it is a gift granted. Nobody earns it. Listen to Jesus in John 17, 2 and 3. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, 
and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's the Lord Jesus in John 17, 2 and 3. So what happens here, again, is our Lord adds weight to his contrasting affirmation by saying, I've received this command and I, and I speak in light of what I have received. And then note finally the words of our Lord here in John 12 should trigger scripturally informed minds to think upon the Old Testament. Let me say these words again. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. My fourth point, and final for the sermon, is the words our Lord spoke here should trigger scripturally informed minds to think upon the Old Testament, specifically the book of Deuteronomy, in particular Deuteronomy chapter 18. Listen, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brethren, now watch this, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Sound familiar? Kind of sounds like John 12, 49 and 50, right? Do you think there's a legitimate connection between the two passages? Yes, there is an echo, a reverberation in John 12 of these texts in Deuteronomy chapter 18. The 5th century Egyptian theologian Cyril of Alexandria says this, he reminds the Jewish people of what was foretold by Moses about him and thereby skillfully strikes them with a subtle blow. What God said through Moses about Christ is well known to everyone. Well, he could say that back then. It's probably not well known to everyone in our day. This is a subtle blow, he said. What does he mean by this, a subtle blow? Where, If we were there, first century Jews, and uh, leaders and teachers, theologians, and we heard the words of Jesus, how could they be taken as a subtle blow? Well, he doesn't quote Deuteronomy 18, right? But he alludes to it very clearly. What is he saying? He who Moses spoke about, he who was prophesied by Moses to come, is in your presence. And you need to hear him. Hear the words of Luke 9.35. This is my beloved son, Hear him. Him you shall hear. Hear him. Listen to him. Take heed to him. Pay attention to what Jesus says. He's the long prophesied 
prophet, priest, and king who has arrived. This is my beloved son. Hear him. By the way, these words were never spoken about any other. And these words in Luke 9 also echo Deuteronomy 18, 15. Him you shall hear. Our Lord's language is a subtle way of claiming he is that prophet promised long before he walked this earth. He is the one prophesied of and he is now speaking to his people and he, 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 he must be heard. So that is my exposition. One contemplation before I end. The words our Lord spoke came from the highest authority imaginable and must not be brushed off lightly. For connects the last day judgment with the authority, the source, the origin of our Lord's teachings. One man puts it this way, the words which he has spoken are of the highest authority and, if rejected, will carry their own condemnatory sentence with them in the soul forever. What an awful judgment must Christ's invitations pass in the bosom of the lost sinner. How will the words, come unto me, all ye that are weary, condemn him, long as his memory endures? How will they stir up new pangs of remorse in the guilty consciences? That's pretty heavy, isn't it? It is, and it reflects this passage that we're looking at. If you have a red-letter Bible, like I do, um, it's red letters. Jesus spoke these things. Now, did Jesus come in the first century to condemn the world? No, the world was already condemned, okay? He came not to judge in his first coming, as he says many places, but to save, right? So these words aren't only calculated to scare you. They ought to terrify you, by the way, if you don't, aren't a believer. But he spoke these words not just to terrify, but to bring you to, to your personal end, end in yourself. Stop thinking, I, I can handle this thing called life. There's a hymn. I'm going to read it. It's hymn number 240. Uh, you can follow along if you'd like in the hymnal. Great God, what do I see and hear? The end of things created. The judge of mankind doth appear on clouds of glory seated. The trumpet sounds. The graves restore the dead which they contained before. This is the judgment day. Prepare my soul 
to meet him. The dead in Christ shall first arise. At the last trumpet's sounding, caught up to meet him in the skies, with joy their Lord surrounding, no gloomy fears their soul's dismay. His presence sheds eternal day on those prepared to meet him. Who are those who are prepared to meet him? Believers in Christ. Guilty, sinful people who recognize their filth and guilt and shame and go to Christ with all those things, foul eye to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. They go to him for forgiveness and cleansing and righteousness, and they cling to him. But sinners, okay, so the word but is a contrast, right? This is verse 3. But sinners filled with guilty fears, behold, his wrath prevailing, for they shall rise and find their tears and sighs are unavailing. The day of grace is past and gone. Trembling, they stand before the throne, all unprepared to meet him. All you have to do to be prepared to meet him is to believe the gospel then you're prepared. The fourth line says, Great God, what do I see and hear? The end of things created. The judge of mankind doth appear on clouds of glory seated. Beneath his cross I view the day when heaven and earth shall pass away and thus prepare to meet him. See that last line? Beneath his cross, this Hymn writer is saying, there's two types of people. There's people that on the judgment day are not prepared to meet him. And then there's the type of people who gaze at the Son of God, having been crucified for them and risen from the dead, and believe the gospel. Those are prepared to meet him. These are not. Now that hymn, as with our text today, has both bad and good news. Just reading the hymn on the one hand, you, you go, wow, that sounds great. And on the, hand, on the other hand, you go, oh, man, that's terrifying, right? It, our text is that way. Uh, it, it has bad news for unbelievers, and it has good news for believers. His command is everlasting life, a quality of life that's better, obviously, than the type of life we have now, but even better qualitatively than the life endowed upon Adam and Eve, our first parents, because they, in that state of existence, could sin. But when everlasting life is endowed upon us in its fullness, we will be unable to sin. And nobody here can say, oh, like, you know, Thursday, when I didn't sin. The teaching of our Lord, rejected by some who hear, will come back to haunt them. You could see that in the, in the hymn I just read, right? Their tears, their sighs will not avail. The day of grace, when the judgment day comes, is past. 
However, our text um, presents to us as well a way not to be haunted at the judgment day by the words of our Lord. His commission was to both earn and grant eternal life to all who believe upon him. Reading verses 49 and 50 on their own and then in a wider context, we know the commission that he was given and received and executed was to both earn something and grant that which he earned. You see the goodness of God in that? The Son of God assumed our nature, born of a woman, and he assumed our duties, born under the law, and he assumed our liabilities in order that he might redeem, save us, from the wrath that would surely come upon us unless we had a covering somehow. He earns, by virtue of not sinning, the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus never sinned, therefore he didn't fall short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? In that sense, it is a glorious status conferred by God upon human nature that's way better than the beginning. Everlasting life can be yours if you're found in the sun. So jump into the sun. How do I do that? Sinful, soiled hands receive him. Believe upon him. His command is not do better, try harder. It's basically give up. Come to me, all ye who are heavy laden, burdened with guilt and sins and horrible past, and I'll give you rest, he says. Wonderful words by the word who has become flesh for us and for our salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. This, these texts are very uh, Mysterious in some sense, difficult to understand, but the gist is clear. The words of Jesus are not to be trifled with. Anyone who hears them and does not believe rejects him, rejects the Father, rejects the Holy Spirit, rejects heaven, rejects the only message, the only news that could possibly do us uh, eternal good. This is a huge thing. May there be nobody here who rejects his words and therefore rejects him. May you work graciously in all of our hearts to be thankful that his command is everlasting life. It was a commission he received to procure a quality of life for sinners that we could not procure ourselves that Adam fell short of when he sinned, but that Jesus, the last Adam, did not fall short of, he fully attained, and he has power 
and grace to grant that quality of life upon guilty, helpless sinners like us. Work these truths into our souls, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.